Hello and welcome to the Going Solo Podcast. This is Matthew Mayer coming to you from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I am beyond excited to bring you these next two episodes. This is part one of part two of my episodes, You Can Call Me George. And who is this George guest you're asking about? Well, it's somebody that I've been waiting literally years, not over-exaggerating, years to interview, but none other than George Winston. As you know, he is one of the foremost instrumental composers of our time. You know, born in eastern Montana, growing up in Miles City, you may best know him for his solo piano recordings, his early 1980 albums that included Autumn, um, December, my personal favorite, uh, Winter into Spring, all of which reached platinum selling status in the United States, with December also reaching gold in Canada. Pretty unheard of, pretty unheard of for instrumental solo musicians. Um, he has his 15th album releasing soon. It's an album called Restless Wind, um, releasing on May 3rd. It is, it's been described as the next chapter for this worldwide legend of interpretation. Specifically, this album adapts ensemble arrangements to solo piano, repurposing relevant works by musical greats such as Sam Cooke, The Doors, George Gershwin, many others. Um, in our interview, you will not only hear from one of the most influential solo performers of all time, you're also going to hear me um, speaking to the person who influenced my music along with thousands of other artists. Truly an impression on millions of listeners, thousands of artists literally lasting through the seasons. And as I say in many of my podcast interviews, I hope you don't just listen to this once. I hope you listen to George Winston's words, just like his music. I hope you let it hit you, listen to it over and over it's really, it's really phenomenal. It was really an awesome experience to uh, speak with him. So here I am. I'm in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Saturday afternoon. Uh, this setting is a perfect parallel to my time as a child in Canastota. Um, and here I am decades later talking to George Winston. So, you know, in basketball, there's Michael Jordan. In boxing, there's Muhammad Ali. And in solo performing, there's George Winston. This is my conversation with George Winston. Hello. Hello, Mr. Winston. You can call me George. I know you're visual, George. You're probably going to just see a smile on my face this entire interview. So. Oh, thanks for doing it. How is your uh, travel from Brainerd? Did you have a good show? Yeah, on the way to uh, Sioux Falls. I'm here in Sioux Falls, and I'm excited to watch you perform uh, how you've personally formed my music. It's, it's finally going to come to a highlight for me tomorrow night to watch you live, which has always been a dream of mine. So thank you. Oh, thanks very much. <laughs> you know, you grew up in eastern Montana. How do you feel that area shaped you and your music when you when you take it all the way back? Well, the uh, extreme distinctness between the seasons mm. up in the north and in my, eastern Montana just was what I grew up with. So that's I just thought of everything in terms of seasons. Now, I, when I grew up in Miles City, Montana, it wasn't that he couldn't get TV. It was one radio station. So the seasons were the whole entertainment. Mm. You know, like like baseball in the spring and swimming in the summer and raking, you know, colored leaves in the fall, you know, sledding in the winter. There were like four different worlds. Yeah. So 
I just think in terms of that, like, similar to you think in terms of English, if you grow up speaking English. You know, so speaking of seasons and trying to get this interview kind of in that season flow, you know, starting in spring, it's amazing the influences that you have and how you give them such tribute, not only to your biography, but and it's, it seems like in the early 1960s that started with, you know, Vince Guaraldi. And then 1967 sounded like a very formative year for you going into um, discovering the doors. So is that kind of how, yeah. how, it's, how it started for you? Yeah, I was a big fan of instrumentalists, and I heard Vince Guaraldi's Castigate to the Wind, 62, and uh, particularly a fan of organists. So I would get records that had organists. They weren't known at the time, but early 67, saw a record by the door, band called The Doors. It had an organ, so I'll get it. And I put it on, and I was like, wow, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> i got to get an organ and play in a band someday. <laughs> so I played organ for four years, and then I heard Fats Waller in 1971, his piano recordings from, uh, and band recordings from the uh, late 20s and early to mid 30s, I immediately switched to piano. I said, oh, solo piano, not organ in the band. <laughs> Both things were instant realizations upon hearing those mentors kind of just pointed me in the right direction instantly. Also, it sounded like the album Jungle Partner was a huge influence on you with James Booker. I know you have the Pixie series. You like Pixie number one, Pixie number two, Pixie number three. Oh, pick, Pixie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I Yeah, first heard James Booker's recordings in 82. And um, Professor, Professor Longhair had passed away, but there were some things being reissued or here and there after he passed on. So I was in the uh, Roots and Rhythm record store in Northern California that specialized in you know, blues and R&B and Irish and different, different folk music from different countries. Um, and I went in and said, any new Professor Longhair recordings and John at the desk said, no, but have you heard Booker? And I go, no, who's that? <laughs> so I got the album, they have the album, uh, Piano Prince from New Orleans. And I put that on, and I went, first song, it's the same thing as That's Wallowing the Door. I said, that's the way to play the piano. <laughs> and, it, and it still is. And so then after that, a friend of mine, the late Ice Cube Slim, of, you know, New Orleans and California yeah. promoter, and supporter of New Orleans music, he said, now, have you heard this one? This is the best one. So I got that one, Jungle Partner. And that, it's, I've learned how I want to play the piano from that record more than any record ever. I use techniques, many techniques, you know, from that record, from all the songs. There's certain principles and techniques. And so I want that in my vocabulary. And, and then... Three years later, I heard the late, great Henry Butler, and I've studied him for a long time, and he was a dear friend of mine. But I'm much more of a James Booker kind of player. I really think of the piano in terms of James Booker's languages without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Again, kind of like if you think, if you grow up here, you think in English without thinking about it. You don't say T-R-E-E or what's the word for that thing? You just go, oh, there's a tree. Right. So I just <laughs> think of the piano basically in terms of his languages, um, which he had several, and he has a, had a song called Pixie, and I've serendipitously come up with other Pixies, yeah. which uh, I define from 
James Booker's Pixie is a medium tempo blues progression with the left hand staying kind of toward the middle of the piano, mm. not going down real low. Mm. Over the years, just a bunch of things with that, uh, a bit of that same structure just happened over time. And some of them didn't quite make it, didn't quite come alive, but there were about five or six or seven of them that I play now and then or might be on a future record. Uh, Pixie number three, I've recorded and Pixie number 13, Pixie number 11. With one listen to James Booker's Jungle Partner album, you can instantly hear the relationship and influence he had on Winston's music. James Booker was born in December of 1939 in New Orleans. With a flamboyant style and patch over his left eye, there wasn't much he couldn't do on a keyboard. Skilled in classical music, playing Bach and Chopin, to mastering the elements of stride, blues, gospel, and Latin piano styles, Booker became known in some circles as the Black Liberace. Another interesting note, Booker also had some run-ins with the law enforcement in New Orleans. And who was the district attorney at that time? Harry Connick Sr. Now, according to Wikipedia, Connick would discuss law with Booker during his visits to the Connick home and made an arrangement with the musician whereby a prison sentence would be nullified in exchange for piano lessons for his son, Harry Connick Jr. Musician Dr. John described Booker as the best black, gay, one-eyed, junky piano genius New Orleans has ever produced. Winston would release some of his most successful albums in 1982, while Booker would pass away the following year in November of 1983. With that, we thank you, James Booker, for passing an important musical torch. So I combined Pixie 5 and 6, so that might get on some album if it fits if it fits within the context. And it seems like when you talk about that context, themes are really important to you as you approach an album. I heard in some other interview, like maybe it was Booker's or it could have been actually one of Geraldi's albums, you talked about 11 great chapters make this album. And it seems like you have that same approach with those albums that you've put out. Is that how you think is in, when you said Seasons is also bringing, those songs have to fit together as a theme? Yeah, I, it's kind of like you're doing a movie soundtrack and you're serving the movie, except there's no movie. Yeah. Uh, so what happens, I'll, I'll notice over time that there's five or ten or however many songs that are a certain theme, like forest or plains or summer. And then I'll look for uh, songs or occasionally I put a song together over time that fit within that and then see what works together and put it in the right order. It takes years for all of them. Mm. Autumn took seven years. That was from 73 to 80. Oh, wow. Um, the Doors took uh, 35 years. <laughs> that was 77 to 2002, the album I did of the Doors song. So, yeah, I'll notice. I don't cause any of it, but I notice it. I don't try to cause it or couldn't or don't or whatever that is I don't it's like the weather I just kind of notice it and then react you know I notice uh, even when I 
put a song together, it'll just sort of come up while I'm playing the piano. I'll go, oh, I'll write down those chords. Maybe that's pretty good. And maybe it's next day, maybe, okay, it's still there. Let's, a few weeks later, it might come up with an introduction. might have my chords. So it's all, my effort is in practicing. Mm. There's no effort in what to do. That That's, uh, the music tells me what to do, I guess you could say. Just again, like the weather tells you what to do, what kind of coat to wear, or, you know, very similar kind of thing. Speaking I, of weather, what's it like there, 40 or 50 today? Around 50. Uh, we had about two days ago, further west of Sioux Falls, there was about 20 inches of snow. <laughs> so it is melted here. So we're not too bad. We're about that 45, 50 degrees so you should be, the road should be good when you come in, so. Yeah, I've been dodging all the, you know, weather. Yeah. You know, got Brainerd just before, leaving Brainerd just after. So East I go to Kearney, uh, Kearney Nebraska after. after uh, Rapid, right? Rapid City and then Boulder, Denver. Maybe it'll be 80 again there when I get there. Well, that's probably what, what we, you know, a little vitamin D on this would be pretty nice. Um, One time in Montana, it was just after I played in Montana in May, <laughs> I think it was a record as far as what record's been kept. It dropped like 89 degrees. It went from <laughs> about 70 to 20 below zero in about <laughs> in a day, you know, within, say, five, six hours. Now, that's probably a season you can't capture in one album right there. <laughs> well, in Montana, actually, eastern Montana, I always regarded there as being two autumns. Late autumn was so much different than early autumn. Yeah. And late winter was so much different than early winter. Right. So, for me, you know, people put uh, linear definitions on things. Yes. That's not reality. That's just what somebody said, what it was. And you can use that as a reference point, but... I think one needs to make their own reference points where it's appropriate. Now, you don't really need to, somebody in Mississippi wouldn't need to say there's two winters. So I, I think the linear approach to things is a useful tool depending on what your project is. Mm. But for music, it's not the primary tool. Not I, I spent, I did the linear thing learning music theory and the chords to be able to put labels and numbers on music like you know, you put numbers on in the universe, how far this is, you assign the name of a galaxy. It's, it's, it's that kind of, so the linear approach is part of the spectrum for sure. But as far as what to play and how to play it, that's no part. Now, linear approach will come in, I need to practice that part a lot. You know, so it, it's um, definitely part of the spectrum, but, you know, definitions can be prisons. I can say I'm in, Ancestry English, what do they call that? Anglo-Saxon. Yep, Anglo-Saxon. That's that nothing to do with me. Absolutely nothing. But anybody, any ancestry to me has nothing to do with me. What I'm doing now, I don't even consider it to be real. <laughs> so everybody's got different kind of perspectives, you know. Right. You know, like even the states, like those borders aren't real. But sometimes they kind of the way the energy changes. Like when you go to. Colorado to New Mexico, the border is exactly the right place at the first cactus. <laughs> yeah. Or you can tell when you're in Montana. You can just sort of, I think I'm in Montana. Uh, but I've heard that some people consider the Dakota should be east and west Dakota, not north and south. 
Now, I haven't been spent years and years in the Dakotas to determine uh, that, but uh, you know, I'm like the cats. You know, I'm playing. It doesn't matter what state I'm called, what state I'm in is called. It doesn't matter what the country's called or the planet. You know, I got this song to play. So when it comes down to it, you know, it's inter- interesting facts. To me, it's more being inspired by that topography of the Dakotas and eastern Montana. And I'm not really inspired by, you know, the Dakotas or Montana. It's the, the planet that, in that region that I grew up in. So, but again, definitions are, can be useful. Like, you go, well, what's that, where's that region that inspires you? And I can go, eastern Montana. And they can look on a map and see all the dividing lines and borders and go, Oh, that's what you're talking about. Maybe I'll go. But that's not going, and that's not, you know, it's, it's a reference point. Categories are kind of good to get you started, but they're pretty useless after that. If you say, like, jazz musician, right? that doesn't mean anything. I mean, jazz is, like, over 100 years old. Is it early Armstrong? Right. Is it some Taylor? I mean, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> what I think categories really nail it. Is it tell you what something is not? Oh. I can say jazz. You go, oh, okay, this isn't J.S. Bach. Right. You know, this isn't Pete Seeger. Um, same thing with, I regard genetics that way, too. Genetics don't tell me what I'm going to do. They'll tell me what I won't do. Uh-huh. They'll tell me I won't be a jockey. I'm too big. And they'll tell me I'm not going to be an NBA center. I'm too small. <laughs> so genetics will tell me what I'm not going to be able to do. They're going to tell me I'm not going to be able to fly. Oh, you know? that's interesting. But they have no way of telling me what I am going to do. You know, I absolutely... I'm not getting off track here. No, no, you're not at all. At this point of the interview, it's not only been fun to hear and learn more about his influences, the albums that have shaped his music, how he approaches themes in writing an album, but also how he can take a subject and connect two seemingly unrelated things. From linear definitions, the importance of adding your individuality, and being careful not to let categories define you. George now takes us into the world of music theory and his approach to multiple instruments. If you are a musician or a composer, these next couple of minutes are for you. I absolutely love when you were talking about the linear approach, and I think it might be on your website. I love how you talk about music theory. It's like you're giving permission and it's a breath of fresh air to hear from such an experienced, well-versed musician like you to say, yes, music theory is great. You can break those rules if need be down the road. And break them. Right. Right. Yeah, it's helpful for studying. Or if you're in the middle of an improv, you don't know what to do. Well, I'll go to 251 somewhere. You know? <laughs> You'll know what it is. But to me, court... If I'm doing workshops, I always urge people, if nothing else, even if you don't play piano, learn the major and minor chords because it's completely linear. It's not like a guitar where the notes are five different places. Right. And, or a violin where it's in three different places. You can apply that to other instruments. But it's also like having words instead of letters. You can just say to somebody, C major seven, instead of going C. E, G, B, play them together too. <laughs> you know, they're, it's, it's a good organizational tool. Or 
I don't use sheet music at all, but somebody can go through the sheet music and go, look at all this stuff. Oh, it's just E major to A minor. <laughs> right. it, it can simplify. I know what the notes are, but I can't make them come to life. And I either can't or don't want to or won't or whatever that is. You know, I just, everything I've ever wanted to learn is off a record. So uh never played any classical or with an orchestra where you, you'd want to have certain things be precise. So, right. Uh, never been a, never, never used, maybe I've used sheet music twice in my life. It just happened to be something. Wow. Maybe it was Frank Zappi's piece. Yeah. There was sheet music. Oh, well, I'll see what this says compared to what I heard. Like I kind of have to count up and go, I think that's F up there. What's that above the staff? Well, I think that's an A. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I'd say, you know, learning even just the majors and minors. If you know the majors and minors, then you can go as far as you want with chords, you know, to 13th with a flat five and everything. You know, you can go as far as you want. In fact, the interesting thing about chords, if you take any major chord, there's really no such thing as a chord. It's kind of like the border of a, of a state or a country. It's what it's, it's what its context is. Like if you have C, E, G, the key is C, that's C major. Right. But what is it in E flat? In E flat, it's E flat six with a flat nine. Right. So it all depends on the context. Um, like words are that way too. Like if I just said chair, you'd probably go, what are you talking about? <laughs> but if I said, there's a chair in the middle of the road, I got to get it out there. <laughs> right. So it's very much a context thing, and uh, but it's it's good exercise to go through, analyze things like like the Bach chorales, you know, and go through the whole, you know, five of two and right. everything, um, and then you know the deceptive stuff. You can you know have a song in C, you're ending in A flat, as a common note to the C major chord. As they call it deceptive cadence. So you can near the end, you can play an F, you can play a D. Hopefully, something that has a C in it that kind of connects it to take you to possibly another major or minor or whatever to connect. Yeah, I, I pretty much I play. Uh, James Booker did two things that are connected. Like James Booker would use, he'd say he'd play three different right hand chords, but he'd have a, a Henry Butler too. They'd have a common tone or two in those same three chords so it isn't just ah, ah, ah. it's right. nah, 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 it kind of flows so I noticed that in James Booker's intro to uh, Sunny Side of the Street mm. there's just so many principles in that Jungle Parker record that oh uh, that sound I gotta get that I was gonna say that's on the same that's but, on the same record as Pixie that Jungle yeah. Partner yep oh and I use his uh, basically use the prince, his solo that's in the song Jungle Partner when I recorded uh, Stuck It in the Middle of Central uh, Marching In. Yeah. Recorded that. And then Vince Caraldi's Mass Marvel, I basically played that solo in a minor key. So I said, oh, I know what to do here. Sometimes I'll take whole solos and go, well, they improvised it, but I'm going to use it as it is. Mm. Um, the Doors Light My Fire Organ guitar solos. I used them exactly as they were. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to improvise it. Vince Caraldi's solo and skating. I don't want to change it to anything else. Whereas in Masked Marvel, Vince Guaraldi's improv, I completely, almost completely change it. It's just kind of, what, what does the song want? 
when you're interpreting song, there's kind of three elements. There's the original composition and composer, which I love because I want to do it. And there's that, that whole viewpoint. Right. And then I'm converting everything solo piano or solo guitar or solo harmonica. So hardly anything I ever played solo it was solo by the original. James Booker's Pixie was. But very, very few things I play were solo instrumental. Um, uh, so does this work on the piano? You know, or the guitar or the harmonica? Right. Does, does it work well with the instrument? I may change the key from the original composer because the piano just wants it to be different. And then the third element is me. What do I want? For example, so I play some of Inscaraldi's songs. He recorded an F up in A flat. Uh, I just want to. So it's good to have somewhat of a knowledge of all the keys in case a song wants you to play something in the key other than what the composer had. The Doors song, Riders in the Storm, wasn't working for me at all. It was in E minor. I, I did it, put it, I started doing the E flat minor and it completely worked. I don't know the nature of the, the piano, nature of how I play. I don't analyze it. I just say it works or it doesn't. You know, it's, uh, why is it working? It's not going to be useful for me to know why because it's not going to apply. Every song is completely different, like every cat is. What works, what's, what's good with one cat isn't necessarily going to be good with the other one. Well, and when, and when you talk about how you approach a song, you have this great balance of how do you balance letting something come naturally like the weather, letting something form with the hard work that you do consistently in, in making a song? Like how do you merge those two together to come up with what you ultimately want? You mean interpreting somebody? Yeah, either interpreting or composing your own song. I know you talk a lot about the interpretation, but you seem to have this great mix of letting things be natural and serendipitous with working hard to get what you want. Yeah, if it's something I came up with that happened, it's just playing the piano and what sounds good, mm. uh, what the piano has to offer. If it's somebody else's song, well, I only have to deal with two-thirds of it because the, the chords and the melody and everything, the rhythm, is already there. I see, I see. It, it's just given to me. Um, over time, you know, like I mean, like I changed the rhythm on the the Doors song called "Touch Me." I treated it as a ballad, half speed, <laughs> and it worked. It didn't work at, at the up tempo they did. It didn't work for me as a ballad. It worked perfect. Um, awesome. So just kind of playing the piano. Something's not working. Try something else, or just come back to it, or even throw it out. Even. If it's going to come back, it'll come back. And that's the natural part of it, right? If it's going to come back or if it was meant yeah. to be, it was meant to be. Or you kind of dream on it, you wake up in the morning and go, oh, you touch me half speed. <laughs> uh, or you might do the linear thing, go, I'll play it this way, I'll play it that 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 way. Okay, this way I played it, this works. You might do it that way too. You're discovering, you're... Well, yeah, they either do something or do nothing. Either try a bunch of different tempos or don't do anything and let it come to you. Gotcha. 
and not only with your approach to piano music, but a lot of people, some people don't realize that also you might co- approach the guitar a little bit more free, where it doesn't have limitations, or that harmonica where, you know, you can approach that in a different way than piano music. Well, pretty much the same approach. Okay. You know, what works on the instrument. Like a lot of the Appalachian stuff, the fiddle tunes, some work better in harmonica and some work better in guitar. There's very, very few that work on piano, but Mm. um, mostly guitar harmonica. And uh, sometimes I'll be playing a song on the harmonica and after a year or two, I don't really like this anymore. I don't like, or I don't really... I'm not into playing this anymore, but I still like the tune, and then maybe it'll work on guitar. So it's it's good to have the three options. Yeah. Because uh, essentially, I'm a song player, so if I like a song, I want to play it. You know, before I played, if I like a song, I bought it. After I started playing, if I like a song, well, if I like a song, I want to play it. Right. That's owning the song. You know, buying it is just a means to be able to hear it. <laughs> so, right. so it completely changed when I started playing. I changed from a listener to a player, and I wound up really only listening to stuff that I'm studying. Um, or going through, you know, I'll go through a bunch of Cajun CDs. Do I want to play any of these tunes on solo harmonica? So there's there's that approach. It's just oh, a lot of old-time fizzle albums. You know, go through those. That's a way to get to something. Various means to, you know, you know, like, a, I know I want songs. I know I want to play songs. And I, I'm open to songs that I don't know yet, that I haven't heard yet. Although I'm lawfully done kind of doing that after all these decades. Yeah. But um, pretty much, or like a elder Cajun friend of mine sent me some Cajun CDs. I've had them on the last three days. Um, I wouldn't have them on otherwise. So that's kind of serendipity that, I didn't go looking for that. It, it came to me. Uh, or you might hear something in a taxi, you know, on the radio or something at somebody's house. You know, there's that serendipity, too. All kinds of ways. I love that. As George was talking about the mixture of serendipity and the hard work he has put in his entire life, I couldn't help but reflect and want to ask him the question of how he released his very first album, back in 1972. Let me ask you this, George. When you recorded your first album in 1972, and then you compare to where you are now, you know, coming to Sioux Falls and and just one of the many, many shows you've done, did you ever think when you were recording that first album that this is where you would end up? I was really just thinking of the album. I mean, every so often I would envision a concert and I, I would be, I'd play live wherever some free thing kind of happened that I could, you know, like some free festival to have people play half hour sets. Um, I didn't envision it as a goal. I, I would occasionally see a vision that it was possible. Mm. Um, the thing if you got songs is you use them in appropriate situations. So if you got the songs, let's say you don't, you can't get concerts booked. Uh, I can play a senior center, you know, right. to play for friends. Sometimes they got, they are piano players to play in the middle of malls, you know, like play where you can. Yeah. You know, I think just 
doesn't fit, then don't do it anymore. Or back, back up, back up plays, you know, or things like that. So it's really, really the thing was thing to do is to have the songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you see an appropriate situation, which were several for me, not just the concerts, but sometimes they'll have a thing where they have pianos scattered around a big park. Yeah. And on the weekend, you go play it. Well, when I play at that, I'm not going to play anything I play at a concert. Right. But very little. That's going to be all the R&B stuff. Whereas a concert will be half of the folk piano, melodic piano. I mean, there's only one reason people come to concerts, because they've heard records. Mm. And, and they're not going because there's nothing to do. Right. So, <laughs> so what do I still play from the records? Mm. Uh, I have to really actually be still playing the song. Whatever situation I'm in is really the other half of the situation. It's not just me. It's who's there. And what situation am I in? Oh, by the way, that first album was not thematic. That was just my best 10 songs at the time. Yeah. Well, and you must have been, what, about 22? Was that how old, around there? 20, 23. Yeah, yeah, okay. And the that's been reissued, Ballads and Blues, 1972, with five bonus tracks. There are five songs that I had demos of that I almost put on the record. Mm. But for some reason didn't seem to fit. But years and years, decades later, seemed to fit, you know, as a... CD retrospective or CDs had more room than LPs, things like that. So that really was where they put the bonus bonus tracks where I was coming from 71, 72, 73. I can only imagine, like, there's probably not a lot of other people coming out with these solo albums during that time. Was that something inside you that you were like, I want to do this, I can do this? Because I think about all of what, you know, you've really open the door for for so many thousands of artists and I try to put yourself in those shoes and at 23 years old in 1972 did you ever feel like oh my gosh I'm kind of starting something that hasn't existed before no I uh, I play only played solo after I heard Fats Waller and then uh, a friend of mine told me about the guitarist John Fahey and he only played solo and he had a record label mm. I thought oh maybe I can make a record for his label so I played in some things, and he signed me up. <laughs> it just kind of luck, you know? Or I think a friend of mine knew him and said, yeah, you should play some of this stuff for John. Maybe he'd be interested in, on his label having a piano record, other than just, they were doing mainly guitar solo records. So like John Faye, Robbie Basho, Leo Kotke, Peter Lang. Oh, yeah. Uh, Richard Ruskin. Yeah. And, and, yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, who else is going to record me in 72, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, John found a lot of the blues artists that hadn't been recorded since the late 20s, early 30s. Started his own label to record his pieces and gradually started recording other people. Uh, it was a huge contributing factor to... I realized John was doing everything that I wanted to do. Solo instrumental albums, solo instrumental concerts and record other solo instrumental players. Mm. Have a record label. He was doing everything I want to do. Mm. I, so it's like when you have a mentor, I think one of the main things a mentor does is shows you it can be done. Mm. I think there's that story that nobody would run a four-minute mile since recorded history, and then Roger Bannister ran the four-minute mile 
in the 50s That's that right. a lot of other people did after he did. That's right. It's just so knowing something can be done. Like I heard Sam Hinton play solo harmonica. So I didn't know you could play a drone or play a bass and a chord at the same time. Right. As a melody, just like you do on piano. I had no concept for that. Right. <laughs> now you still got to put in the work and figure out how to do it. It's kind of like, you know, if you saw some, every kid sees somebody whistle. Yeah. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't know to do that on their own. They probably wouldn't put their lips in the exact same spot. But then you you fool around with it, and then you gradually get that sound. Mentors, to me, have just showed me, like Chase Booker showed me, wow, it's possible to play all these pieces, and these rock and these R&B pieces, solo piano, mm. and have that band approach in that way. I'd actually quit playing in 1977 because I couldn't be Fats Waller. I read that somewhere, and, I, and that was so surprising to me when I read that. I was like, oh, my gosh, George had quit playing for a while. And I read somewhere it was because, like you said, uh, Fats Waller, who I know was an influence, I was going to ask you that question. And then what it, what had happened after that? Oh, I, I uh, just borrow records from the library. You're out all this time to listen because I wasn't practicing anymore. And one day to the L.A. Public Library and I saw this record by Professor Longhair called New Orleans Piano. Yeah. A reissue of his tracks from 1949, 1953. And I put that on. I said, well, this is the most beautiful thing I ever heard. I think I can do that. i got to start playing again. <laughs> but he's the one that got me playing again. And every New Orleans pianist goes through something with Professor Longhair. Wow. Somehow. Comes to terms with his music somehow. It took me 35 years to really come to terms with what to do. I didn't, but I didn't know it was going to take that long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, James Booker really only took me six years, but that's because I'm a Booker player. Uh. Henry Butler took me 22 years. I figured, you know, this is my relationship with this person's influence. Um, but I think the main thing for me with a mentor is to show it can be done. I love that. Oh, I didn't know it was possible to play chords as melody and bass on a harmonica yeah I, you've only got one mouth it's not like you got two hands well you put your tongue in the harmonica and split the harmonica into two halves <laughs> sam Hinton was a master that I, he could also hum yankee doodle and whistle dixie at the same time so sam had kind of a something with that also he came from the vaudeville era where some of the music, a lot of the music, was entertaining things like that. Was it was more the song was more about the entertainment than the song. Sometimes he came from that era, and that that kind of reflects that too. You know, he did the same thing with Frere Jaca. I can't do it at all, but I have no, no desire to sing. Never have. So, so I actually had a harmonica in preparation for this interview. Key and key too. <laughs> Oh no, key of C, I mean. That is, you're you're exactly right. That is, oh, that was awesome. You just totally nailed that one. This is a key of C harmonica. <laughs> I'll never forget that. That that was awesome. I mean, you know most you know most people play in G of C harmonica. And the harmonica you can really play solo well in C, D minor, or G. I retune them myself. Oh, do you really? I don't, yeah. Well, obviously, you have the... (laughs) 
have a harmonica too? Oops, I'm driving 90. I better slow it down. <laughs> Did I just play harmonica with George Winston? Uh, at least a couple notes anyway. That was pretty awesome. Next into our interview, he takes us deeper into his technical knowledge of not only the piano, but the harmonica, the guitar, and his overall thoughts on limitations. So most people will play the C harmonica in the key of G, and the sevenths are flat. You what they call the mixolydian, mixolydian mode, like going from G to G on right. piano and the white notes. Right. But I, t- I tune those flat sevenths up the half step. So I'm playing in that second position, say, G on C harmonica, but it'll be major scale instead of the mixolydian mode, instead of the mode with the flat seven, you know, the Scottish mode. That is interesting. Uh, you get to that fifth on, on the major. The harmonica only has the white notes of the piano, so basically I tune the harmonica to the song. I create what white notes does this song need? Mm. And it might be C through C. It might be the B needs to be a B flat. It'll be the, might be the E needs to be E flat. So there is that limitation in the harmonica, but I've learned that over many years that all instruments have those limitations. Mm. But that's, what's, that's what contributes to the tone of the instruments, is you just can't do everything, but within these limits, there's a lot of great tonality because it's sort of scrunched. Mm. The harmonica doesn't have 12 notes, it has seven, but you get this tone. And I prefer the, uh, the harmonica, the one you have, the standard harmonica, the diatonic harmonica, <clears throat> seven notes <clears throat> to the chromatic harmonica. And guitar. Well, the guitar, I used seven strings on the guitar. I used to use eight, but it was too many. Uh, so as a harmonica, I have an extra hole at the top and the bottom. So I have harmonica, I use a 12 hole because I need these extra high notes and low notes. So, but any beyond that, I don't need. And I started interfering with the tonality. When I had eight strings on a guitar, it started interfering with the tonality. Uh, and six was too few, eight was too many. Okay, I know what to do. <laughs> There's the <laughs> old linear approach. Got me, got me through it on that one. The Bosendorf for piano in Germany has extra low notes. I don't like it. You think I would. Yeah, that, that surprises me. I don't like the tonality of those notes. I rarely, rarely use the low A on a piano. Mm. I mean, one song, maybe the Doors, uh, L.A. Woman, one time. But the B flat's great. And the, the high C on a piano kind of doesn't sound like anything. So I can see why, to human ears, they didn't have the piano any higher. Now, a dog would probably want another octave. <laughs> As our time together continues, I couldn't help but think, does George Winston realize how he is now the influence to thousands of people in this generation? As, as you're talking about all these influences, George, you know, you're talking about Waller and Booker and Giraldi and Professor Longhair and, and all of these that you've given, you know, you've tipped your hat to over the years. Does it ever hit you that now the name Winston is what is the influence to so many people like myself and thousands and thousands of others? 
No, Ted McCurry, I'm I'm still a student, so I'm I'm the one learn, doing the learning. I guess I could intellectually say theoretically that's possible, but I, it doesn't really compute with me. I mean, maybe yeah, maybe it's true, but I, it's just it's kind of like um, what brand of Springwater is somebody drinking? Well, I don't know. I don't care. You know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like. Their preference is their preference, and they should uh, go with their preference and have the, you know, ability to do so, you know, and the right to do so. So I uh, don't even think about it. It doesn't really occur to me. I think that's one of the many reasons, not only the humility that comes out with your music, but also it shows in how much you give back. I mean, you've given so much, not only to proceeds from the drives that you've done, does that ever hit you as well as just how much you have given to so many people? Well, I just try to as much as possible. The, uh, I should mention, you, you probably, I forgot who the local food bank is there, but we always invite the local food bank and ask people to bring cans of food if they can. And, you know, the proceeds from the CDs always benefit the local food bank. Back in the mid-'80s, I was saying, I want to interact with the communities who invited me to play in a way other than just the concert, but have it be within the concert, you know, have it be, have it fit in, you know, have it unobtrusively fit in. It's, and hunger's kind of the bottom line. If somebody's down on their luck, you can sleep on the ground, you can get water from the rain, where are you going to get food? Yeah, that's right. Legally, you know, so if somebody can get some meals, they can start picking themselves back up. You never know, you're going to get laid off or, that's right. You know, weather, weather floods, I mean, just anything can happen. So the food banks, they've been doing a great job for so many decades with this. And that fit right in. And, um, you know, I've been a recipient of that myself way back um, a couple times. Only a couple times I had to. And yeah. uh, everything teaches, I think. And that showed me, like, wow, if I can never help these organizations, I definitely want to do it. I was absolutely blown away to hear that. The great George Winston at one time also needed help by organizations like food banks. Another lesson was detachment. Like detachment, like when I stopped playing piano in 77, yeah. I just didn't take a break. I threw it out. I completely detached from it. And you were just like enough. Like I, I'm, I'm enough already. Yeah. So when I'm working on a song, somebody's is not working out. It's okay with me if I never play it. You know, it's like the journey. I had, I got, I learned from the journey. If I don't play this song, well, I've got others. You know, I wish I could, but it's not happening. You know, uh, I mean, it's got to sound more like than it's clever transcription. Like if I do a Doors song. Yeah. It's got, if somebody has never heard of Doors, it's got to sound like it's a pretty good piano piece. Yeah. You know, it's got to uh, have a life of its own. And if it doesn't, I don't play it until it does, if it ever does. Fortunately, there's, you can work on different things at the same time. So, so you know, if something doesn't work out, you've got something else. I love how you talk about the detachment. And it seems like... <clears throat> Let's hold up on that question until I do the next turn, no um, which is very quick. 
it's going to interfere. But yeah, you can ask me that question again. And, uh, yeah, no problem. Let's see. Now, now I'm at a red light with a lot of cars. Go ahead. <laughs> and as George stops at that red light, this is where we stop part one of two of our episodes of You Can Call Me George. What a fascinating man. What an unbelievable conversation. I hope you share this with others. Please connect with me at Mayor Solo Piano on Twitter, at Mayor Solo Piano on Instagram, at Mayor Solo Piano on Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. I would love to hear what you think of this episode. And again, please share this with others. Thank you for joining us. And until then, we'll see you on part two.